Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you speak to us through your word by your spirit. We pray you do that this morning, that we would understand what you are saying, that we'd be equipped to live for Jesus, that we'd be changed. For we ask it in his name. Amen. What makes the church different? Why is the church different to every other institution on earth? Uh, How is this gathering that we're part of this morning different to the many other gatherings we've been part of this week? Is there something unique and distinctive about church? Or are we pretty much the same as all the other communities we've been part of during the week? Those communities on our street or in our office, uh, at the school gate or in the gym, down the coffee shop or the pub. What makes church different? I'm just going to use that one. The answer to that question matters to all of us, whether we're already a Christian person this morning or whether we're still thinking about the Christian faith. Because it helps us answer all sorts of other questions about church. Do I belong here? Do I want to belong here? What do they believe here? Do I believe the same thing as them? Why do they behave in the way that they do? And am I supposed to behave like that too? The letter of 1 Corinthians is full of answers to questions like that. And today we're going to begin a series looking at the first four chapters of the letter. Paul wrote this letter around AD 54 or 55 to a church in Corinth that he'd planted just uh, about four or five years earlier. And uh, he'd spent 18 months there, as we learnt in our first reading, teaching them God's word and helping them to grow. First century Corinth was in many ways like 21st century London. It was cosmopolitan. It was a mix of locals and, and immigrants who'd come from far and wide. It was an economic powerhouse, a place where people worked hard to get to the top. It was connected, a centre of trade and travel and opportunity. It was a place of culture. You'd never be short for intellectual stimulation or entertainment. But Corinth was also divided. It was divided between the haves and the have-nots. If you moved in the right circles, if you had the right connections, then anything, you, you could do anything, the sky was the limits. But if you were at the bottom, you'd probably stay at the bottom, and so would your kids. What would a church be like in a city like that? How could they live for Jesus? How could they grow? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this church experienced some big growing pains, and uh, Paul, over the course of this letter and on other occasions, had to write to them to put them back on track. Later on, we'll learn lots about practical living in the church. But first of all, he answers that much more fundamental question. What makes church different? And the first answer is brief, but crucial. Firstly, God's call creates the church. God's call creates the church. Verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Paul reminds them that God called him to be an apostle, a messenger of Jesus. Paul didn't choose that job because he thought it would be a good career move. God called him and God called these Corinthians too. 
verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now in those days, if you were writing a letter to a group of people in a city, you'd often start by singing the praises of that city. You'd say how amazing it was to live there. But Paul doesn't pay any compliments to Corinth, does he? Even though it was no ordinary city. What really made Corinth important wasn't its wealth or its culture or its influence. It was this extraordinary church that met there. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. See, these are no ordinary people. These are God's people, his gathering, his assembly, his community. God has called them out of Corinth to belong to him. And so according to verse 3, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are God's holy people. God has set them apart to live for him, not for Corinth. He's called them to live a lifestyle that is fundamentally different to the lifestyles of Corinth. They are to pursue what God says is right and wrong, not what Corinth says is right and wrong. They are to live for each other, not comfortably sticking in their own social circles and doing what's best for number one. This church is created by God's call, and so it must be different. But at the same time, he says, you're not unique. You see that in verse 2. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul is making the point that all God's people all over the world are called by God. It doesn't matter where we are. If we call on the name of Jesus, if he's our Lord, we are called by God to belong to him. We wouldn't exist apart from the call of God. Now, no other institution is like that, is it? The community at the school gate is created by geography. Office camaraderie exists because we're in the same profession. Common interests, common needs, common culture, common life stage, all those sorts of things create communities and institutions. But the church isn't created by those things. The church is created by God's call. He calls men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, young and old, to be his sanctified holy people in all the corners of the world. So if God's call creates the church, what should we do in response? Let's trust him, not ourselves. Let's trust him, not ourselves. Just look on to verse 9. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. God will never forget that he has called us into a relationship with his son, Jesus. He will never forget that he has changed us from ordinary people to extraordinary people. Now we'll learn later on that the Corinthians had become a rather self-confident church. And Paul just drops a few hints about that in these opening verses. But uh, that is a reminder that if we are inclined to be overly confident in ourselves, maybe because of where we live, maybe because of the sort of church we attend, or the type of ministry that we do, we're not important to God because of those things. We're not important to God because we happen to live in 21st century London, or because we're part of net, the network called Commission, or because we choose to do ministry in this particular way or in this particular place. Of course, all those things are important, but they're not the thing we should trust in. We trust God because the church is created by God's call. Well, how else is the church different? Uh, secondly, 
God's grace enriches the church. God's grace enriches the church. Verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word is a greeting, is essentially a blessing. It's a reminder that grace is the source of the Christian life and that peace with God is its goal. And then when that blessing is given, Paul does what he often does, which is move on to a heartfelt prayer of thanks. I always thank my God for you. I hope that you thank God for our church when you pray. But I wonder what it is you thank God for. Thank you, Father, for the friends I've got at church. Thank you for the people who look after our kids in Sunday school. Thank you for the new person I met last week. Thank you for the money we've got to do ministry. Striking, isn't it, that Paul doesn't thank God for those sorts of things. Instead, he goes back to that word of blessing in verse 3, and he thanks God for grace. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And the next three verses help us understand what that means as Paul gives three evidences of God's grace in the lives of these Corinthians. And he introduces each piece of that evidence with uh, three small words. Verse 5, 4. Verse 6, thus. And verse 7, therefore. So verse 5. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. The Corinthians were very good with words and gifted in the area of spiritual knowledge. They got a lot wrong, but Paul gives credit where credit is due to God. Because he knows that if it wasn't for God's grace, they wouldn't have these things at all. God has enriched them with grace. And that reminds us that everything good amongst us as a church is a gift of God's grace. By nature, we are spiritual paupers, but God is spiritually rich and he loves to share those spiritual treasures with us. But what was the point of the particular spiritual gifts that Paul gave to the Corinthians, that God gave to the Corinthians at verse 6? God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So Paul and others had preached the gospel in Corinth. The Corinthians had believed, and so God had enriched them with grace. It was God's confirming proof that they really belonged to him. And again, that is totally different to how the world works. In the world, we often have to prove that we belong before we get the benefits of belonging. We have to pass the audition. We have to get through the trials, pass the exam, fit in with the crowd. Only then do we get the part, or get selected for the team, or get enrolled on the course. Only then are we added to the WhatsApp group. Only then are we invited to the party. It's the other way around with God's grace. We bring nothing to the party. All we have to do is believe, and we're in. And when we're in, God gives us the spiritual gifts that prove that we're in, and that we need to live, that we need to live for him in his church. In fact, that's the third proof of God's enriching grace in verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Paul isn't talking here about the charismatic gifts that we learn of later in the letter, things like tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge and healing. He might be alluding to those things, but the word he uses here is a much more general word 
rather than the word he uses to describe those things later on. So he's not saying, you are the most charismatic church in the world. He's saying you've got everything you need to live for Jesus for as long as it takes. Verse 7. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them that one day Jesus is coming back to judge the world. The Corinthians don't need to fear that day because they will be finally and fully what God called them to be in the first place. Do you remember? Sanctified, holy, that's what he called them to be. What will they be on the last day? Blameless. And the word in verse 8, he will keep you firm. It's actually the same word as the verb, the word in verse 6. Confirm. So verse 6, God confirmed their testimony about Christ amongst them. Verse 8, God will confirm you blameless on the last day. God's grace proves we belong to him in the past, the present, and the future. It's like one of those product standard marks that you see on the goods you buy from the shops. God has put his product standard mark on us. It says simply, given grace in Christ. It's all the proof we need that we are called by him and will be kept by him until the end. So God's grace enriches the church. What should we do in response to that? Surely we should respond in the same way Paul responded. Let's always thank God for grace. Let's always thank God for grace. Look back to verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. This was not a perfect church by a long way. They needed a lot of correcting, a good amount of telling off. But Paul's thanks isn't begrudging or reluctant or sarcastic. He doesn't thank God because that's the done thing to do when you write a letter like this. He always gives thanks to God for them because he knows that God has enriched them with grace. I wonder, do we realise that we always have something to thank God for, for our church? Even if things aren't quite how we would like them to be. Even if things are quite a bit how we wouldn't like them to be. Even when we feel something is missing. Even when we think there's something we're not happy with. We've always got grace to thank God for. Of course we should pray about those things that aren't quite right or quite a bit wrong or that we're not very happy with. But we should pray about them in a spirit of thankfulness. Because thankfulness helps us keep things in a God-focused perspective. It reminds us that church life is ultimately about him, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. God's grace enriches the church. So let's always thank God for grace. But what about if things start to go wrong in a grace-enriched church like this? What should we do then? Well, that's the subject Paul turns to next. Teaches us our third lesson about what makes church different. So thirdly, Christ's cross unites the church. Christ's cross unites the church. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
Paul says the same thing, basically, three times, slightly different ways. Be united. They'd been enriched, hadn't they, in all kinds of speech. But they were using their speech to divide against each other. Like a broken bone, they'd been fractured and they needed to be reset. They'd divided into factions. They'd forgotten they were on the same team. And the news that Paul had recently received makes that abundantly clear. At verse 11, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. What's going on? On the face of it, it looks like they've divided into different groups around different human leaders. Paul, Apollos, who went to Corinth, as we heard earlier in our reading from Acts. Cephas, that's Peter, and Christ. But I'm not quite so sure it was as simple as that. Do you notice verse 12? Paul says, what I mean is this, not they are telling me that. So perhaps this is actually a caricature of their behaviour rather than an exact description of their behaviour. And I think that is partly right because although Paul and Apollos had been to Corinth, Peter never went there. So why would people uh, gather under his banner particularly? And what's more, Paul belittles the slogan, I follow Christ, when surely that's what he wants every Christian to do. And in fact, at the end of this section, he agrees with that slogan. So just look on, would you uh, flick over the page to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. He says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or the death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. You are of Christ. He's agreeing, isn't he, with that slogan, I belong to Christ. So verse 12, I think, is partly a caricature of what they're doing. But it's more than that. Because Paul planted the church, Apollos helped it grow, and they both spent good chunks of time there. Their names in particular are repeated a lot through chapters 3 and 4, as we will see in subsequent weeks. And Apollos is even mentioned right at the end of the letter as well. So it's likely, I think, that factions are gathering around the names of Paul and Apollos, even though Paul and Apollos didn't intend for that to happen. Haven't we become very used to that in recent years? I'm a Brexiteer. I'm a Remainer. I'm with Boris. I'm with Jeremy. Now that sort of behaviour might work in the world out there, but it's wrong, isn't it, in the church to divide like that? Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? What on earth are you talking about? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? Don't be ridiculous. Now, if Apollos was unwittingly a source of some of this division, Paul is very kind in that he doesn't mention him, but he derides himself instead. The Corinthian church, you're united because Christ was crucified for you. Not me. You're united because you were baptised into Christ's name, not mine. And then to underline his point that their unity comes from Christ, not himself, not from Paul, 
Paul says, you know what? I didn't even baptise many people. Verse 14. I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. Crispus, we heard about him, didn't we, reading from Acts. He was the synagogue ruler. And uh, uh, Gaius, well, he was possibly the man who owned the house next door to the synagogue, where the church started to meet once they'd been kicked out of the synagogue. So Crispus and Gaius, they're, they're probably quite high up the social tree in Corinth. They're amongst the haves, not the have-nots. And so maybe they are some of those who are responsible for some of these divisions between the haves and the have-nots, which Paul has to talk about later on in the letter. So by mentioning them by name, by mentioning that he baptised both of them, Paul seems to be just gently bringing Crispus and Gaius down the peg or two. Oh yes, I also baptised Stephanus' family too, but it really doesn't matter whether I baptise them or not, because you're all on the same level. You're all united in Christ. So Crispus and Gaius, if you are behind some of these divisions that are going on, please stop, seems to be what Paul is saying. It's Christ's cross that unites the church. Not a Paul or a Paulus or anyone or anything else. I love the way the reformer Martin Luther responded to news that the first Protestants were calling themselves Lutherans, paraphrased at Paul's words like this. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to be the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Unity doesn't come from being associated with Luther or Paul or Apollos or anyone or anything else. It comes from Christ's cross. So what should we do? Let's unite around his gospel, his gospel. Christ's cross unites the church, so let's unite around his gospel. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, whether the Corinthians were dividing between human leaders or not, to what extent they were doing that, the real issue was much deeper. It was deeper in their hearts. They'd forgotten the gospel of Christ crucified for them. They were not applying it to their life together. And so there was far too much Corinth in the church and not enough Christ. Too much schmoozing to get to the top. Too much rubbing shoulders with the powerful. Too much scratching others' backs. Too much dragging names through the mud. Too much Corinth in the church and not enough Christ. Of course, they couldn't change where they were, but they'd forgotten who they were. Called by God to be holy, set apart to belong to him, enriched by God's grace, given everything they needed to live for God, united by Christ's cross, saved by his death in their place. They'd forgotten all that, and they'd reverted to type, living in the egocentric world all around them. So it's no surprise that they started to look like that world instead of looking like Christ. Now if it was possible for the Corinthians to have too much Corinth in their church, surely it's also possible for us to have too much London in ours. For us to mirror the culture around us 
rather than to reflect the God who called us. For us to focus on what we've got rather than not on what God has given us. Now I guess there are many different ways in which we might do that. But maybe one particular danger, maybe one danger highlighted by this passage, is to divide into factions, to splinter into different interest groups. Maybe especially as we go through this conversation we've been having about our vision and future as a church. Wouldn't it be easy to say, I agree with him, I agree with her, I think this, I think that. Far too natural for sinful human beings like me and you to divide and quarrel and fracture. Please join me in praying that we don't do that. Of course we can have different views, different opinions. We don't have to agree about everything. But please let's not splinter into factions like the church in Corinth did. Because our unity isn't based around the precise details of our vision as a church. It's not even based upon the location we do ministry in. Our unity comes from the gospel, the good news that Christ was crucified for us and for the world out there that doesn't know that yet. But like God said to Paul in Corinth, keep going. There are many people in this city who belong to me. So let's remember, please, where our true unity comes from. The life-changing, powerful gospel of Christ crucified for us. What makes the church different? Different to the community, the school gates, or the office, the street, the gym, the pub, the coffee shop? Very simply, it's God. It's his call. It's his grace. It's Christ's cross. Those things make us different. They teach us why and how we can belong, why and how we should behave, and what it is that we believe. Like the Corinthians, we are not going to get everything right, but we do have God on our side. Three things. We've been created by his call, so let's trust him, not ourselves. We've been enriched by his grace, so let's always thank God for grace. And we've been united by Christ's cross, so let's unite around his gospel. Should we have a bit of time to pray quietly by ourselves, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.